This is Leaders Lens, the show that reveals what it really takes to become a great leader. I'm Jacob Espinoza, a Fortune 500 leadership consultant and director of career success at Workweek. Let's go. And there were two people up for promotion, a man and a woman. And sure enough, the team referred to them, and they were both very exceptional leaders. They had a great deal of loyalty from their team. They were getting great results. And I noticed that they talked about the man who was up for promotion as a great leader. And they talked about the woman who was up for promotion as a real mother hen. And I was like, okay, stop the trains. You know, let's examine. And, and at first they were a little defensive and they were like, oh, come on, Kim, it doesn't mean, we didn't mean anything by that. But again, let's go back to what we said before. Words really matter. And who are you going to promote, the real mother hen or the great leader? It's not hard to understand how these sort of seemingly small biases creep into the way that we make decisions and wind up in a discriminatory situation. That was like discrimination. I am incredibly honored to be joined by Trey Bryant and Kim Scott, the authors of Just Work, incredible backgrounds, two of the most incredible minds in leadership that we currently have. I mean, the book Just Work, so important, such an incredible topic. And especially with the times that we're in, where we're kind of seeing a transition happening And I'll be honest, I don't get nervous for podcasts, but I'm a little bit nervous right now because I've really been looking forward to this. I have so much respect for the work you two are doing. And I just want to get get right in into Just Work. The idea behind making sure we have workplaces that are fair, where we don't experience bullying, we're not experiencing prejudice, we're not experiencing bias. And something that you talk about in the book is that it's possible not to have these things. I think sometimes we come into our workplace, and we just kind of have this lens that this is just the way that it is. I need to make the most of it. But you two really kind of paint the picture of how we can get out of that place and how you can't actually create healthy workplaces from all levels, right? Whether you're a leader or somebody that's just an entry level, like there's tactics you can use. But I want to start talking to the, the leaders out there. What are the things they should be looking for as they're trying to be aware of potential toxic qualities in their workplace? Yeah, I think, you know, it's so tempting to, to, I hear all the time people saying bias is inevitable. There's nothing we can do. But bias is a pattern, and it's a pattern that we humans have made, and it's a pattern that we humans can change. And so I think the first step is to distinguish between bias, prejudice, and bullying. I think we often conflate. These are what Trier and I call the root causes of workplace injustice. And if you think about bias is really not meaning it, there's obviously much deeper definitions of it, but I want to offer some that'll help us distinguish in the moment. Bias is not meaning it. Prejudice is meaning it. And bullying is being mean. So those are some simple definitions. And I'll let Trier talk about what leaders can do about each of these things. Yeah, so it's really important that we need to be able to name it so that when we name it, we can actually solve for it. So to your point, Jacob, there's a lot of leaders. We recently had a client that's like, yeah, we really want to focus on bias, but we don't have discrimination in our organization. And it was like, actually, let's talk about that, right? And so when we talk about what leaders can do, the Just Work framework is really powerful because it not only gives everyone, regardless of where you are in the organization, a framework and solutions of what to say when you don't know what to say, which, you know, for bias, we encourage folks to use an I statement. 
So an I statement invites someone in when you are noticing bias, right? So if someone says, you know, I don't, Kim, what's the story that you say about pretty girls? Yeah. So the, my very first job, the CEO of the company uh, said, I didn't know they let us hire pretty girls. And I was like, oh, what do I say now? Yeah. And so it's like, you know, using an I statement, like, I don't think I can work here. or I don't feel like I'm going to be respected if that's how, you know, people are getting engaged with me and talk to me. So I'd invite someone in to let them know how you're feeling and, you know, to share that so they can understand your perspective. And then when we talk about prejudice, right, prejudice is meaning it. So we need something a little stronger than an I statement. And that's where we encourage folks to use an it statement. So, you know, I've been in an organization where, unfortunately, we had a hiring manager that did not extend an offer to a candidate because it was a black woman that wore her natural hair out and she didn't think it was professional. The white woman was a hiring manager. And so in that instance, you know, I can use an it statement saying, you know, it is illegal in 11 states, should be all 50, to discriminate against someone, how they wear their hair in the workplace, right? That is leaning in on the law, but you can also, you know, lean in on workplace policy, like it is illegal or it is against HR policy or just common sense, like it's ridiculous that we wouldn't hire someone because of their hair. And then with bullying, you know, we encourage folks to use a use statement and a use statement really pushes that person away, right? So if someone is bullying and being mean, saying, hey, you can't talk to me that way, right? Or what's going on with you? I don't think you mean to come off in that way. And so those are just kind of simple things that everyone can use. And those are very tactical and practical that, you know, everyone can begin to implement. But when we're talking about what leaders can do, right, the solutions for leaders take a little bit more intentionality and thoughtfulness, but absolutely can, are action-oriented and can be implemented. And so when we talk about bias, that's where we encourage leaders to implement and put into practice bias disruptors. And there's three things that we encourage leaders to do with bias disruptors. The first is having a shared vocabulary. And a shared vocabulary is a word or a phrase that when someone says it on the team, everyone knows that we are about to disrupt bias. After that, it's like, hey, what is our shared norm? Yeah, that's where things get a little uncomfortable. Like, what do you do when someone flags bias on Jacob? And now Jacob is like, okay, someone, you know, threw a flag on me. And we call it a purple flag for our team. And now what does Jacob do, right? And it's, it's saying, hey, Jacob, these are the shared norms of how to act. So, you know, first we encourage people to say thank you because it takes courage to flag someone's bias. And then the next thing that we encourage people to say is either, hey, thanks, I understand, I'm working on it. Or, hey, I don't quite understand what you're flagging. Let's talk about it after the meeting. And then the third thing that you need for a bias disruptor is a shared commitment. And so we encourage folks to say, hey, in the beginning, we're going to flag bias in every meeting at least once. And if we don't, let's save time at the end of the meeting so that we can discuss, you know, what has occurred and find it. Because just because it didn't get flagged doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means that either no one noticed or two, it was the environment where people felt like they could actually stand up and say, hey, I'm going to flag this bias that I just noticed. So when you're working with leaders, whether it's at a VP, a CEO level, what normally is getting in the way of creating changes, like meaningful, impactful changes within the organizations? I think part of it, for example, I was working with one leader who was really working on, he wanted to have a, a better, more gender diversity at the company. And he kept referring when he stood up in front of the organization he would call everyone guys. <laughs> he said, this is not helping. You know, I am not a guy. And obviously, there's a lot more to do than start with sort of recognizing your own bias. But it, it's, you know, it's tiring. 
to change your vocabulary. And yet words matter. And this is why part of what we're doing with the bias disruptors is to help people build stamina, build stamina to understand and to be persistent with the Trier and I wave our purple flags at each other all the time because we're learning all the time. And, and I keep making the same mistake. And the purple flag allows us to sort of make it as just a part of how we work together. So part of it is building stamina. But Trier is really the expert in diversity, equity, and inclusion. She spent her whole career working on it and has some very clear ideas about what gets in the way. There's a lot of things that I would say the most consistent thing is actually having the right person to do the job. So if you don't know which one, if you don't know what you're looking for, then you're not going to find it. And then two, when you do find it, if you don't actually have those with the expertise to solve it, then you know, you're know you kind of going at it without the right resources. So leaders and founders, you understand that when you're ready to build a product, you need to go hire engineers. We understand that. When you're ready to PM it, you go hire product managers. When you're ready to sell it, you buy our salespeople. And when you're ready to market it, you hire marketing folks. But yeah, when it comes to inclusion and equity and diversity, we go, oh, there's an underrepresented person that is impacted by this and you feel passionately. Sure, you can go run that strategy. And that's silly, right? And so we need to start looking at inclusion and equity and diversity as a business function and making sure we have the expertise to solve that the way that we approach all of our other business functions. And we take that seriously, right? We would not have our engineers pick up the phone and call and make sales call. That would be silly. So why are we tapping the shoulders of our underrepresented folks, our Hispanic, Latina professionals, our women professionals, our black professionals, our queer professionals and say, hey, go solve this challenge, either in your day job capacity by giving them the title or in addition to the work that they're supposed to be doing. And now we have data and research that shows that, you know, like they're not able to do their job because now they're so distracted by these other things. And then the second thing that I think also is that it's uncomfortable and people don't want to acknowledge it. We work with a lot of organizations that say, hey, we are data-driven and we love data, but yet when we say, hey, we can measure your bias, they're so reluctant to do that, right? We have to measure what matters. And so it's uncomfortable. And usually when we start with clients and we come in and we do an audit, we can't come in and like do an audit and really tell you what's going on. I always manage everyone's expectations. We're not coming with good news. So be prepared, right? We're going to show you the data that shows that you have discriminatory practices, whether it is by design or not. We're going to show you that, you know, that there are people that are not feeling included. We are going to show you that your pay is not equitable. We are going to show you your promotions are not equitable. And it can be uncomfortable for people to want to see that. But the, the thing is, is that once you identify it, then you can solve it. And only good things to come from there for your talent and for, you know, the work that you all are out, set out to do within your organization. Yeah, and you talk about the uh, the success measurements. And that's something I hear people use as resistance often is, well, we don't want to do it just to meet a quota. So my, sometimes my rebuttal is, or my rebuttal is, well, what happens when you didn't measure it, right? Like we kind of see the outcome there. Um, like what are some impactful ways to, to measure diversity? If you know, th- I'm thinking of the, uh, the quadrants of just work, of collaborative and being respectful. And how do we measure success there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you take a look, let's t- take a look at the whole employee life cycle. If you think about who are you, b- before you even get to hiring, who are you even inviting in to interview, you know, and measure that. And then do an experiment. And for a week, take the PII out of, and Trier and I can talk about how much, Trier knows better than I do how much work this is. But 
take the PII out of resumes and see if all of a sudden you've got a better balance, if you've got better representation in the people you're inviting in to interview. And then take a look at your interview process. Once you bring people in, are you all of a sudden not extending offers at the same representation level that you bring? And why not? It's probably not because people are not talented. There probably is some bias. So do an experiment for a little while and see what if we just take a look at sort of in orchestras, they put a sheet up and people would perform for the orchestra in a way that they couldn't see them. So what if you can design a skills test? And then all of a sudden now, okay, we've got the same representation that we had coming in going out for the skills, now all of a sudden you know that there's some bias in your interview process. And it can be uncomfortable. And it's not only about hiring. It's also, of course, about how you're paying people. Just cut the data uh, if you have it. And notice, are we paying this group of people consistently more than that group? Well, there's now let's understand the reasons why. Trio, it looked like you were going to say something. It's also just something as simple, Jacob, as And I find this a lot being a previous chief people HR officer is that you have your most senior leaders that'll sit in a room and try to solve the people problems. They'll be like, what should we do? How do we solve it? And my answer is always, go ask your people. They will tell you. (laughs) And so even something as simple as just, you know, people will say, oh, we took this survey, but surveys are only going to give you so much insight. We're all busy. We all know how it is when you get that survey in your email and it's like on a scale of one to 10, you click through some numbers and you may make the time to write some commentary. But then when you actually are invited and given a platform to share and actually have a dialogue, you're going to get so much more meaningful feedback. And one of the things that we do that's different with our roundtables is that when we work with organizations and we do these roundtables, we always have all of the executives sit in at a minimum of two to be exec observers. And what they do is they have to sit when we're physically in a room, they sit in a corner. We literally put them in a corner, no phone, no laptop, and we give them the direction that they cannot make any verbal or nonverbal um, engagements. So someone, if we're doing a roundtable for women, they can, a woman can't say, well, I don't feel included. And I don't feel like my voice is being heard. And then have the CEO sitting in the corner and be like, well, when did that happen? That's not what we meant. Oh, no. You know, like adding some context, like you need to sit there and hear it. And the reason why we do that is then when we do work with the executive team and do a readout of what we've heard, again, with our team being, you know, really strong facilitators, like we know how to ask the right questions. We know how to get folks to get their true experiences out. There's no, they said, you know, well, true, you and your team, you don't know our culture. They said X, but it means Y. It's like, no, your CFO is sitting in there and they actually heard that. And they're like, that's exactly how our people feel, right? Your COO is sitting there. I heard directly, that is how our, you know, queer professionals feel in the organization and what are we going to do about it? And so I think there's a huge missed opportunity to give your employees the opportunity and the platform to share their experience, to tell them, for them to tell you directly how they're feeling. And they also have some really great ideas on how to solve it. And so that's a place to start as well. I'll give you an anecdote, Jacob, about there was an executive team that I was working with, and they were all men. And they noticed, so we talked about hiring, we talked about paying, and now we're going to talk about promoting. So they noticed it didn't take an enormous quantitative effort to notice that there were zero women on the executive teams. So they knew something was going wrong. So they quantified their bias, and then they took an action And they said, you know, in our next promotion committee meeting, Kim, even though you're an advisor to the company and not working at the company, we want you to sit in on the meeting and just notice what's going on. And there were two people up for promotion, a man and a woman. 
And sure enough, the team referred to them, and they were both very exceptional leaders. They had a great deal of loyalty from their team. They were getting great results. And I noticed that they talked about the man who was up for promotion as a great leader. And they talked about the woman who was up for promotion as a real mother hen. And I was like, okay, stop the trains. You know, let's examine. And and at first they were a little defensive and they're like, oh, come on, Kim, it doesn't mean, we didn't mean anything by that. But again, let's go back to what we said before. Words really matter. And who are you going to promote, the real mother hen or the great leader? It's not hard to understand how these sort of seemingly small biases creep into the way that we make decisions and wind up in a discriminatory situation. That was like discrimination, but it, it wasn't intentional discrimination and it was how it happened. So it was the willingness of that team to listen, as Trio said, to the feedback. Yeah, that oh, come on mentality is just so toxic where you discredit one pain point. Like where's the line where like what somebody says actually matters? And I think it's just so important for, for leaders to, to understand the impact of that in their organization. And I think also when the hire happens, I'm curious to hear both your perspective on this, but a female or a person of an underrepresented community is hired, and then the logic is, oh, they only were hired because of this. Like she only got the job because she's a woman, or he only got the job because he's Mexican, or, or whatever the demographic is. And like, what are some tactics? Like, how should people respond to that in a healthy manner if you're that person that actually got promoted? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I want to say you're probably furious. So I feel your pain. Yeah. But Tria, you were going to say something more productive than I feel your pain. <laughs> so one, you know, we have to make sure that we're, words are very important and we have to make sure that we're talking about our initiatives and our strategies in a way that it is tied back to the business case. I personally do not think that we need to be focused on this because it's the right thing to do. The right thing to do goes out the window when we have a bearish quarter, a bearish year. The thing is, is that let's look actually in 2020 when COVID first happened, right? Everyone panicked as they should have. No one knew what was going on. People were cutting budgets to save money, what was going to happen. And DEI programs and teams were the first to get cut, right? In so many organizations. And then what happened? George Floyd was murdered. People were scrambling and didn't have that and did not have that expertise within their organizations. And so a lot of bad things came from that, right? Just bad on top of bad in a very stressful situation with a lot of just, you know, unprecedented things occurring. And so we have to think about how are we talking about these initiatives so that when we do hire someone, no one is even thinking, oh, that person was hired to fill a quota or because they hired, they were hired because they're a woman or because they're Asian or because they're, you know, Middle Eastern. There's work that you could do beforehand so that it is celebrated that we made a top hire, the person that was deserved it. They were the top candidate. And oh, by the way, they're from an underrepresented group that's only going to make our team stronger. But also, you know, I had a situation where I was hired into an organization where this company had a very public mishandling of, of uh, underrepresented, of, of a diversity matter, very public. And I was the next senior hire. And here I am, a Black woman veteran. And there were people that just told me to my face, oh, yeah, like you were hired because we made this misstep with this other person that we hired. And I think I'll take the words from, you know, previous First Black Journal, the Air Force Journal, Marcella Harris, Rest in Power, 
She was a mentor and a sponsor of mine when I was in the Air Force. And she said, Trier, the reason why I got into my roles and my positions as being the first woman, the first Black woman, the first Black person in the Air Force, she was the first of so many. She said, I didn't care. But I knew that I was good enough that I earned to be there and what I did when I got there. And so people said those things to me, but I knew that I was the best candidate and I knew that I was going to come in and kick ass, excuse my language, and make a difference, which I did. And so I think it's, you know, incumbent upon us, or for me, I took it to say, I'm always going to know that like I deserve, I've earned and I deserve to be where I am. And that noise and chatter when I was more junior, like it kind of got to me. But I think that as you become more senior in your organization, like it blows in one ear out the other. But then my thought process was, what can we do in the organization so that others don't experience that? Because not everybody may be able to handle that. And not everyone wants to handle that. You know, we were working, we had a client once that they had an engineering team that they had no women on the team, no women at all. And I said, when you're hiring, you just need to be transparent with the women candidates that you don't have a woman on the team. And if they're okay being the first and the only, but we're going to continue to work on it. Because some will say, I want to help you with that. Let's go. And then some are like, that's not the experience that I want. And that's okay. But we need to give candidates that choice on if they want to be a part of that story and a part of that journey with an organization, because it's okay if people don't. Some of the best advice that I read as I was writing the book on this, it comes from a Black engineering leader at Google. And he said that if you're underrepresented along any dimension, you need to sort of identify a difficulty anchor. So you need to identify someone at the company. And he said, it's not fair that you have to engage in this strategy, but here's what can be helpful. You identify a difficulty anchor. You identify someone who has a great reputation at the company, and you go to them with a project that you're working on, and you describe it, and you ask them if they will give you advice from time to time. And then when you solve the problem, this when you finish your project, And what often happens to underrepresented folks is they're like, oh, Kim did that. It's easy. Trier did that because it was easy. And the difficulty anchor says, this was a really hard problem that Kim or Trier solved. And here's why. So beginning to find ways to establish your credibility and to not allow people to sort of gaslight you that, oh, you know, you did that because it was easy is, I think, really, really important. What does that look like? I feel like the gaslighting has been happening for so long for so many people that there's just this narrative in their heads of what I can and cannot accomplish. Like, where do you even start working past some of that? Or if you're a leader or a mentor, like, how do you help somebody else start working past some of those stories? Yeah. And so interesting. I think, Jacob, I'll be honest, sometimes I really do need my team to hold me accountable to this because, you know, I'm always considered myself a DEI practitioner, but I have also had other roles. I, you know, I started my career as an engineer, and quite frankly, at this point in my career, the gaslighting and the comments, I don't notice it anymore, Fair. which says a lot, right? Like you're kind of numb to it, and so I've had to have my team to say, "Hey, Trier, did you catch that?" Or Kim will say, "Did you hear that?" Like, oh, that that podcast host said this. Jacob, you haven't said anything yet. We will definitely throw a purple flag. <laughs> but if, if you, you do, have. we'll wave but, a purple flag. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. And, and I'll just be like, no, because I, I'm also a person that in my family, the way that we communicate, I've never been the person to focus on tone and delivery. I'm listening to content. And I just worked in some very abrasive, hostile work environments, having been in like the military and combat situations and then transitioning to Goldman Sachs and being on the training floor. But, you know, it happens frequently. We need to recognize it and we can't 
be numb to it. And I'm really appreciative of my mentees, my younger mentees, where I feel like, you know, I have mentors that said, hey, Trier, this is how you navigate it. This is how you deal with it. And I am giving that advice to my mentees and they're like, Trier, we're not going to take it. We're not navigating it. We're changing it. We're pushing back on it. And that's exciting. And that's also forced me to have a different perspective to say, I'm not going to navigate it. But how do we actually have the conversations that be get uncomfortable get comfortable being uncomfortable and have those conversations that we can change it. But the gaslighting happens, right? All of the time. I can remember in one organization, I came and I said, hey, you know, I had some interns that were black that they would go and get a drink from like, you know, the kitchen area and forget their badge at their desk. We've all done it. And then try to get back in the door, but get questioned, do you work here? What team? Where's your desk? But that wasn't happening to, you know, the employees that did not look like that. And when I brought this up in a leadership team meeting, you know, someone was like, ah, sure, that's just like a one-off. Oh, well, you know, they shouldn't be, you know, tailgating anyway. And it was like, we're missing the point, right? And so those things do happen. And as leaders, we have to be cognizant. We have to look for it. We recently had a workshop and we had a really great conversation about self-deprecating humor. And I think that that's something that I can even admit that I have done, where a lot of times where folks from underrepresented groups you want to make a joke about yourself. I'm going to make a joke about being a woman, about being a woman and asking too many questions or wanting all the details, or I'm going to make a joke about being a black professional or whatever. So because you want to attack yourself before someone else attacks us. But leaders need to pick up on that because that says something about how that person may feel in the organization. And it really says it gives you insight into the culture. And so these are the little things that we need to pick up on that can tell us so much about things that need to change and make the work the workplace a more inclusive, more equitable environment so we can better collaborate and do the work. It's interesting, Jacob. I think one of the other things as I was writing Just Work is Claude Steele's book, Whistling Vivaldi. And he said the best thing that anyone did for him to help, uh, he was, Claude Steele was the only black person in his PhD program. And he said the best thing that anyone did for him to help him perform at his best was to give him real feedback about the work and to say, here's what's expected and, and, you know, with great confidence that he had the ability, but here's where you need to do better. And he said that very often underrepresented people don't get that kind of feedback. And there's been a lot of research that women, for example, also tend not to get the kind of performance feedback that's helpful. And so one of the things that you can do as a leader is to point out to people when they're not hitting the mark and to point out to people when they might be gaslighting themselves. As Trier said, like I often tended, especially early in my career, to kind of run myself down in meetings as a means of self-deprecating humor. And I had a boss pull me aside and he said, Kim, you're really good, but you're not so good that you can afford to run yourself down that way. And it, it, uh, it struck with, it really helped me stop doing that. So there's some, these little things that you can say to to people really help. The other thing that really helps, I think, is just building solidarity, like talking. I, I you know, Trier and I'll talk after. Can you believe that this thing just happened? Telling stories is, I hope, I think, really helpful. That's why I told so many stories in the book. It's a powerful way to learn for sure. And so we talked about kind of the transition from how to navigate it to actually want to do something about it, which, which I think is so powerful. Uh, what are some other trends that we're seeing in, in the workplace that you think are maybe healthy or unhealthy? 
So we talked about bias disruptors, which is one of the things leaders can do to about bias. And, and let's commit. We only have a few more minutes. Let's make sure that we disrupt some bias. Because I promise you I've said something in the last 30 minutes that was biased. We all have biases. The other thing I think that leaders can do that really will help is to create codes of conduct. And it doesn't have to be called a code of conduct. But you want to make sure that you're very clear with your team where the line is between, you know, one person's freedom to believe whatever they want, but they can't say or do whatever they want. They can't impose that belief on others on the team. And every team is going to draw that line in a slightly different place. So being explicit about what are the policies so that people can use that it statement when they confront prejudice. So they can say it is an HR violation to blah, 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 blah. So that, I think, is another thing. And then the last thing that Trier and I have seen, a lot of the firms that we work with, is creating real consequences for bullying. Not only conversational consequences, but also compensation consequences. Creating performance management systems in which people cannot get a good rating and therefore cannot get paid a good bonus if they bully others. And not only that, also career consequences. They cannot get promoted. Atlassian has this notion that we will never promote the brilliant jerk. And so creating those consequences is another thing that leaders can do to create an environment that is, in which everyone can do the best work of their lives, which is the whole point of this, right? Yeah. And those are, I think those are some of the positive things that we're helping organizations do to get it right. When, what are we seeing that organizations are not doing? Again, you know, we're about to be two years removed. It's hard to even say that two years removed from like the murder of George Floyd and, and everything that happened and all of these organizations making these very public commitments and how many of them have actually followed up one or even followed through. And so there was a lot of smoke and mirrors. There was a lot of empty promises and we're seeing, you know, people just kind of move past it. And leaders, well, it was hard or, you know, we have other priorities. Business is struggling. We have to focus on all these other things. And again, that's why we have to tie it to the business case. So I think that, you know, there are some positive things. I often get the question, Trier, what's the company that's doing it right? And I always say there's no company that's doing everything right. Is there any company doing everything right in any aspect? But when it comes to inclusion and equity and diversity, no. But there are some organizations that are doing certain things very, very well. I think that Netflix is doing an incredible job when it comes to like content, diversifying content, their handle, strong black lead on Twitter, the things that they do to amplify, you know, and tell underrepresented stories, the deals that they're signing with the Obama, Shonda Rhimes, like there's a like Netflix win on the content, like they are winning, right? And then I think like Ben and Jerry's, Ben and Jerry's is phenomenal. Like they have a whole team of seven people that their full-time job is justice. Ben and Jerry's has a justice team and that's all they do. So when you see Ben and Jerry's with like the Black Lives Matter flavored ice cream and them coming out with statements, that's not because, oh, they have a team with someone that's like, hey, that's a side job or a side project. They have dedicated people. They have a justice team because that's how serious they take it, right? So there are organizations that are taking a very proactive approach, getting it right, doing it right. And, you know, you have to start somewhere. We can't boil the ocean, but we have to just say, where do we want to start? Where do we want to get it right? And then move from there. But there's an opportunity for everyone within their organizations to to get it right. We just worked with a client 
a you know a very a leading boutique consulting company and they were just like Trier, we need to redo our entire comp and we went to them with a very innovative and a very kind of ahead of its time comp strategy where everyone is they're transparent with their pay and at the same level and role everyone gets paid the same and that's huge right and they were like hey we want to start here but the really awesome thing about working with this organization is that they're consultants and so they're going into organizations and they're talking about the changes that they've done and now they're seeing clients say hey you all did that like maybe we should look at doing that and making those changes from a pay equity perspective as well so there's ways that we can get it right but we just got to acknowledge that like, we actually have to put pen to paper, right? Could do the strategy, invest in the work and execute and get it done. And then also refine with accountability. So I had a conversation recently, and I'm curious to hear your, your thoughts on this, but you see a lot more diversity in commercials. Like commercials are very diverse, right? I'm so torn on this, Jacob. <laughs> if you see like CEOs, I think I saw a stat where it's like there are more CEOs named John and Mark than there are female CEOs in like the Fortune 500 or something along those lines. Yes. So kind of curious to hear your thoughts on that, where like there are a lot, a lot of diversity in like the actors, which is powerful, but then look a little deeper and we're, you know, we're not quite there yet. Yeah. What comes to mind is leaders have to remember that inclusion has to be inclusive. So while there's, we're starting to see more representation in marketing and commercials, websites, you know, one of the things that we do with our clients is we do this exercise where we tell you how many clicks or how long we had to be on a website to see for someone of a certain identity to see themselves on your website, right? How many clicks does it take for an Asian woman to see herself on your website? How many clicks does it take for a black man to see himself on your website? But the thing that I have seen in a lot of marketing is you can tell the organizations that are making it black and white. You can tell the organizations that it's like, hey, we threw a black person in there, so we're good. But it's like, where's our Asian representation? Where's our Middle Eastern representation? Where's our representation of you know folks with disability? And so again, it's not just about like inclusion has to be inclusive. And I just need some organizations to get beyond this black white narrative. And we know that this is an issue. We worked with a lot of organizations following, you know, again, George Floyd's murder uh, in 2020. And people were engaged and they were paying attention and, and, you know, they were committed. Our clients were. And then a couple, you know, months later, the beginning of 2021, what happened? Stop Asian hate. And so many of our clients came and said, okay, just work. What do we do now? And it was like, well, you, we just did this with this group. You know, you have the playbook. You've made this investment. And so many of them were like, oh, well, we thought that was what we should do for the black issue and try to name it as like, oh, well, that's what we do when there's the black issue, the black conversation versus, no, this is what we need to be doing when any underrepresented group or any marginalized group is being attacked and we need to wrap our arms around them. And so that was a miss that we were looking at things to say, well, this is the black strategy. And now do we do, what do we do for our Asian strategy? Instead of, again, just it is inclusive and we can do, we can put the strategies into place and put these things into practice for any of these groups in that moment of need. I think also, Jacob, there's another issue that, that you are perhaps alluding to, which is that sometimes organizations which are all white will feature a number of black people who don't, or organizations that are all men will feature a number of women on their website when they don't have these underrepresented groups on actually on their teams. And that, I think, is, in fact, I've noticed a number of companies now don't show executive photos because it stands out to you more when you see the pictures. That's just like literally putting a Band-Aid on something. Yeah, yeah. Or, how do, yeah. And so I think that it is really important that you get real 
diversity on the team, that it's not just a matter of hiding the lack of diversity. I mean, it, it, it sounds ridiculous that I have to say that even, and yet it's the truth. So one last question I'd love to, to have your perspective on is I feel like some people translate the conversation of diversity as being don't hire white people. And curious to hear, how do you, how do you navigate that sort of a conversation? If you've heard a CEO suggest that or somebody on a team, how do you navigate that, that situation? Well, when it comes to hiring, I think again, like that's why we need to understand words and language matters because it's not about diversity. It's about representation. And when you're thinking about representation, you have to benchmark. So there are actually, we have had clients where from a representation perspective, making a white male hire as an engineer on this team that is predominantly South Asian or East Asian would be representative, right? And so again, we want diversity of thought and experiences. So it really, like you have to know your numbers to understand what does representation, increased representation mean for your team or that function. And so for example, like, you know, in a lot of organizations that I've been in for my people team, focusing on hires that are men because predominantly my team are women, right? And a lot of HR people functions are predominantly women. But when it comes to this, oh, diversity, you know, just don't hire white people. Again, it's not about that. It is about hiring. You want top talent. You want the best candidate. But it is about acknowledging that, like, you have to go and you need to make sure that you're finding top talent across various different intersections to come and put them in your pipeline to give your hiring managers an opportunity to make the hire, right? And it's not a numbers problem. It's not a pipeline problem. They're there, but you have to go and build those relationships. We tell our clients the difference between recruiting and diversity recruiting is, hey, nice to meet you. I have a job I'm maybe interested in. Diversity recruiting is, hey, great to see you again, Trier. I have the perfect role for you. The reason why diversity recruiting or hiring from underrepresented groups is difficult for folks is because you don't know people that look like different than you. You don't build relationships with people that look different than you. When people come to me and they go, Trier, I'm looking for, you fill in the blank, and I'm looking for an underrepresented or a black person or this. I go, oh, I know, I know people here. Like, send me the job description. Send me this now. They may, may not be interested, right? But finding a black fill in the blank of whatever you're looking for is not difficult for me because my network looks like me. But if you were looking for someone that's Asian or, you know, of other identities, I would, you know, know those folks too. I put effort into ensuring that my network, both personal and professional, it looks different. And, the, you know, to analogize that, I tell folks, you know, my grandmother, my grandmother knew how to cook anything that I wanted, right? And that is because she kept a recipe book and she put all different types of recipes in there. So when it was time to make something that I wanted, you know, maybe she wasn't like super familiar on like how to memorize that recipe, but she went to her recipe book and she had it. And so thinking about how are you building your recipe book? Because if you don't have it in there, then like when someone needs it or uses it, then where are you going to go find it? And you got to put in that extra effort to go find it instead of just constantly building that recipe book. I think also, Jacob, there's another thing that happens. I was working with a CEO and he said uh, his team was all white men, everyone on his team. And he's like, are you telling me I have to fire one of these people? And I said, no, of course not. But on the other hand, in your organization, you know, how often do you identify the lowest performers? And it's incredible to me. He was like, well, I don't have any low performers on my team. And then I said, well, what do you do when someone who works for you comes to you and says, I don't have any low performers on my team? He's like, well, I make them identify. I'm like, okay, so identify your low performer 
and replace them with someone better, right? That's the idea of this work is that we're not hiring the best people, that we're not hiring the right people for the job, we're not promoting the right people if we are, if our thinking is skewed by bias. So that's what I would say to that. And Jacob, the thing that leaders, you know, for those listening also need to remember is there's a lot of focus on diversity. Diversity is the composition, it's the numbers, it's upfront. But if you are not thinking about inclusion, which is the experience that they're having when you're in your organization, don't even waste your time. Don't even waste your time. I went into an organization as their people HR leader and the CEO is like, Trier, you know, you've been here for like three months. Where's our diversity strategy? Like, you know, you have all this depth and expertise in it. And I go, oh, no, no, we don't need to worry about bringing in under, we don't need to worry about bringing in women or black, Hispanic, Latinx or anyone else from an underrepresented group. And he said, why? And I said, because that last engagement survey that we took, your white men are having issues in this culture. And so if your cis straight white men are struggling in your company culture, everyone else is going to be that much harder. So Make sure that you're taking care inside, take care of house and home first, and then think about how is their experience going to be, and then you can focus on bringing in that talent. So first, take care of house and home, and then also to think about, are you creating an inclusive environment? And also, the thing to remember is that I have a theory that most underrepresented folks, particularly in tech, and in a lot of these industries where we're having these conversations, they are surviving, not thriving. They would love to go somewhere different and have a better experience give them that opportunity and they will come. Beautiful. It's not often I get to spend so much time with two such incredible people. So Tria Bryant, Kim Scott, thank you both so much for making it onto the SB show and keep fighting the good fight. You're doing incredible, incredible work. And I'm excited to see the continued progress you both make. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the show. Don't miss another episode of Leaders Lens and the inside scoop on becoming a great leader. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love Leaders Lens, please tell a friend.